Verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, good morning, friends. It's great to be with you again this morning, albeit via remote church. Well, here we are in the midst of, what is it, lockdown number six. During the week, we've had extra restrictions placed upon us. And I think it's safe to say that by now, everyone is affected in some form or another. Perhaps you're feeling tired or indifferent, discouraged, scared, lonely, angry, depressed, or just resigned to the fact that you've got to stay at home. In fact, for some of us, all or more of these emotions are felt over the course of just one day. I want to encourage you today to consider afresh what our passage in Hebrews asks of us, to persevere. It's a call to persevere in controlling what we can. It asks us to persevere in our own pursuit of God. It implores us not to settle for mediocrity, but to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We know, don't we, it's impossible to remember everything we've heard over the course of a lifetime, but there are certain words, statements or phrases that stick with us. Something is said that strikes a chord with us and it kind of hangs around and comes to the surface when we encounter something that relates to what is up here in the incredible storage facility in our brains. It can be something said at school or work, something that our parents have taught us. A particular part of the Bible has always stood out. It could be from other books we've read. The words of a particular song have meaning for us. There are any number of words we've heard or read that resonate with us and come back to us as circumstances arise in our lives. So it was. The words I heard in the first lecture I attended at Bible College came back to me as I was considering the text we have before us today. I confess I don't remember anything else about this lecture, but I vividly recall Dr. Cedric Gibbs standing up and saying to us, look around at your fellow classmates. The likelihood it is that not everyone here will be following the Lord 
as the years go by. Now, as a young, impressionable 21-year-old, it struck me as almost incomprehensible. Yet there is potential for any follower of Christ to wander from the path that is set out for them. There are so many things we experience throughout the course of our lives with the potential to lead us away from, not toward God. That the theme of persistence, of not giving up, of finishing well is common throughout the New Testament. And we know that Hebrews is no exception also. This passage is all about encouragement, but it's encouragement with a sting in its tail, asking us to wake up, to get out of the spiritual lethargy that we find ourselves in from time to time, comfortable with where we're at, content with our maturity or a mindset that says, I've done enough, time for me to relax, or it's all too hard, let someone else minister to me. Now, before we go on, I feel I need to address the elephant in the room because most Christians who read this passage will be drawn to a few verses in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And most of our thoughts and questions are focused on these verses. Now, we will get there, but one of the challenges in a passage like this is to read it and consider what the writer's original intent was as he wrote it and what, therefore, might God want us to take away. Again, let me reiterate This passage is, like much of Hebrews, about persevering, about being alert. So we're told to grow up, to move on, to take stock, and to persevere. To grow up, to move on, to take stock, and to persevere. Let's firstly look at the topic of growing up. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You will recall that last week Paul introduced us to this intriguing character Melchizedek from the Old Testament. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to expand on this and explain the priesthood of Christ being in the order of Melchizedek and all that signifies. But these verses present a diversion of sorts. The writer's concern is that what he goes on to teach as the letter unfolds is hard But the reason it's hard is not because it is such an out there concept that they won't be able to get their head around it, nor that he himself wasn't gifted enough to explain it properly, but because the audience, we're told, were dull of hearing. Now, being dull of hearing doesn't relate to a lack of opportunity, intellect, or even because the audience were new believers, but because they lack spiritual maturity. As the writer says, though they should be teachers, they themselves need the basics taught to them again and again. They needed ongoing milk, not solid foods. Now, we all know and understand, we expect that a baby needs milk during the early formative years of its life. But if you or I to see a 20 or a 10 or even a five-year-old child drinking milk alone to sustain themselves, we'd wonder what's going on. I'm not a medical person, but I'm not even sure that an adult can live on milk alone. The point is, they were infants spiritually. Though they should have been teachers, 
They needed someone to teach them the same basic things over and over again. Now, we shouldn't think that, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not a teacher anyway, because the writer is clearly using the term in a broader sense. He's not saying that everyone who reads this letter to the Hebrews should be teachers in the sense of being upfront. He's using a broader context. If you, if you go to school or work or uni, you're a teacher. Every Christian is a teacher. If you're a Christian parent, you're a teacher. From the day you bring that child home, singing to it, songs of, of God, of Jesus. From the moment that you're able to open books and begin to read to that child, you have opportunity to introduce them to the glorious stories of the Bible, of Jesus. As they grow and you discipline, you train, you correct your child, you have opportunity to point them to the wondrous grace of God. You can point out that, uh, like you, that we are all fall short of God's glory, but God has a plan. Even as our children get older, as they enter teenage years, as they leave home and even start families for themselves, we have opportunity to model. We have opportunity to speak pastorally into the hearts of our children. That opportunity never ends. As we speak to our neighbours, we're teaching others about what it means to be a Christian, even if it's only through how we seek to apply God's truth through the way we conduct our lives. When we exhibit a high degree of integrity, we show something of who it is that we serve. When you're able to show respect to others while sharing your own Christian convictions on current events, you're teaching others. If you're part of a small group, your contributions serve to teach others through sharing the things that you're learning. Everyone's contribution is valuable. When you're worried about talking about Jesus to someone because you don't know how they'll respond, but step out in faith, you just might be used of God's Spirit to teach them one of the most important truths they will ever learn. You see, every Christian is a teacher of spiritual truth in some form or another. The challenge presented to the hearers of this letter and to all those who would follow, that's you and I, is are we still babes or are we continuing to grow in maturity, in our faith? In effect, the writer says, hey, people, grow up. Don't settle for mediocrity in your spiritual life. Your conversion is the unfolding of the greatest story ever told that God in his infinite mercy and grace would choose you and I. But this is the beginning and he longs for us to be constantly growing into mature believers who are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. To be those who can determine how they ought to live in a crooked and twisted generation. He wants us to be those who can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one those able to discern what is best. He wants us to know how to be wise as servants and innocent as doves in the world we live in. Well, the first three verses of chapter six encourage the readers to move on by giving them a few examples of those who need milk, not solid food. We're told to grow up and now at the start of verse six, we're told to move on. Let's read together. Therefore, let us lead the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward 
toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The key mark of those who are immature, who require milk, not solids, is that they focus on the elementary, the fundamentals of the doctrines of Christ. Now, please understand, the writer is in no way downplaying the significance of these doctrines, but he wants his readers to build upon it. Now, we understand that what he points out here has relevance to his Jewish audience. He, he mentions ceremonial washings and the like. And it's clear from what we've already seen in our study of Hebrews that there is a temptation to return to their roots. Whether it was because of persecution or discouragement or immaturity, as we've seen here, some were wavering and hence the constant theme of persevering throughout. But the warning is just the truth for Christians of any era. The doctrines of Christ, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, these are all central, elementary, fundamental foundations of our faith. They form the basis of the gospel proclamation. The argument is not that they're not important any more than the ABCs and basic English grammar is important to our communication skills. The point is that they're foundational and God wants to build upon them to grow, to stretch and cultivate you and I so that we become much more than merely survivors. He wants us to thrive as parents, to live counterculturally to those around us, to be in the world but not conform to it, to serve others willingly, to give generously, to forgive others as we've been forgiven, to lead self-sacrificially, to know how to respond when we're criticised, ridiculed or falsely accused to be united despite our differences as a community of God's people. Or on the other side of the coin, when we're praised, exalted or admired, how would God want us to respond in these circumstances? These are all things that God wants us to grow in, to understand, to learn to appreciate so that we can more reflect his glory. Friends, what we're seeing here is that there's no such thing as reaching a level of Christian maturity and saying and staying there. And in fact, to do so is to gradually stagnate in our walk with the Lord. No matter your knowledge, titles or intelligence, we never exhaust the riches, the wisdom and the wonder of knowing God the Father. The joy of a personal relationship with Jesus, through whom all things were made and who upholds the universe by the power of his word. The one who walked among us, leaving an example to follow. One who intercedes, who prepares a place whose sacrifice in our place means we are justified before a holy God. Will we ever be able to plumb the depths of the Spirit's work in our lives, of his intercession, his prompting, his conviction, or the excitement of having the Bible come alive as we read it and study it? And yet all the time, often in the back of my mind, come the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Well, can I say from my perspective, from my observations, I don't look on at the community here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church and think, well, we're all babies. I have full confidence that the words of verse three will come to fruition and that God's desire to grow his people to maturity will produce fruit in our lives. 
Now, obviously, like any congregation of God's people, there will be those who are struggling. There will be those who are immature, those who are battling with sin, those who have the trials of life overwhelming them or seeming to. But I don't look on and see that everyone here craves milk. But if I did, I don't think I'd share what what was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the ride to the Hebrews does in the following verses. Instead of continuing to provide milk, you see, he goes in boots and all. I think if it was me, I would, uh, I would tend to hold back and concentrate on those fundamentals to try and establish them. But what the writer here does is that he goes in and he continues on. He tells them to take stock of where they're at. Please read, read with me from verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, let me say right from the start, the leadership here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church does not believe a Christian can lose their salvation. By definition, a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus, and that is not what we're having described here. Our confidence to make this statement is based upon what the rest of the Bible says, not on interpreting a few words outside the testimony of what the rest of Scripture says. So Jesus says in his own words in John chapter 10 from verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch him out of my father's hand. Paul tells the Romans in 8.29 that those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also justified. He tells the Ephesians in 1.4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He confidently tells the Philippian church in chapter 1 verse 6, He who has began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ. To the wayward Corinthian church, he explains that God will sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, he says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He encourages the church at Thessalonica with these words in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Not to mention the words of Jude in Jude verse 24 and 25 that so many of us are familiar with. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our God, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now. The common thread through all of these passages is not only that 
Our salvation is not of works, but neither too is our sanctification. The spiritual change in the life of Christian is sure not because we can, we have or will work hard enough to hold on to it, but due to the promise keeping power of God acting on the intent of our hearts. So now that that groundwork has been laid, let me say that the truth of this passage is that it, it is able to be interpreted a number of ways. Some argue that the writer is speaking in a hypothetical occurrence in order to warn them to stay true. Warning them of a hypothetical situation that could happen if they're not careful. But I can't help but feel there is not much power in warning of something that cannot actually come true. Others say it's referring to those who will lose their reward, arguing that the text says repentance is impossible, not salvation, but they are saved only by the skin of their teeth. I would argue that the saving power of Christ, the grace poured out, points to all believers being more than conquerors. Then, of course, there are those who say it does point to a Christian who can lose their salvation. As I've pondered and read a number of differing views on this passage, it struck me that if in reading this passage, the question that comes to mind is, can a Christian lose their salvation? We're actually, I think, asking the wrong question. For me, verse 6 contains the question we ought to be asking ourselves. Who are those, after experiencing the things that we've read, who are those who have fallen away and have held the Son of God up to contempt? So as we peruse these verses, have that in the back of your mind. Who is it that would do this, that could do this? Well, verse 4, we'll notice, starts by emphasising that it is impossible. And when the writer says it's impossible, he's not saying it's merely difficult. It's a challenge, but it can be overcome. What he's saying is that it's without possibility. In case we're prone to think the writer is really just saying it's hard, but God is able to do it, let me point you to some of the other uses of this exact same word impossible within the book of Hebrews itself. In a few short verses in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, we're told that it is impossible for God to lie. I think we would all agree with that. It's part of the character of God. For God to lie would undermine the very nature of who he was. Later on in Hebrews, it's in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Now, we we would readily acknowledge that. If it were possible for bulls and goats to take away the sin of man, then the sacrifice of God incarnate, God the Son, Jesus Christ, was not necessary. He goes on in Hebrews chapter six and verse uh, Hebrews chapter eleven and verse six, and says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please God." And we would all acknowledge that. I think as Christians, faith is required to to approach God. So with that in the back of our minds, we cannot read these words that follow and not be struck with what the writer describes. Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. 
I mean, if you were going to describe the Christian experience, you could easily use these or similar words and feel you've actually described it. Yet there's something amiss. They've fallen away, but not as we may think. And it's important to make a distinction here. You see, this does not describe the Christian that is trapped in sin or backslidden, who has lost their way, who is in distress over where they're at, because we know when we're in this condition and cry out to a faithful God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Nor does it refer to the prodigal sons and daughters out there. We know there are many of them. There are, there are some associated with, with our church itself. Prodigal sons and daughters. We know it's not referring to them because our scriptures tell us that the father heart of God longs to welcome them as they return. And in fact, there will be a great celebration on that day when they do return. Friends, if you grieve over sin, worry you might not be good enough. Wonder how God could accept someone as flawed as you. If you find yourself looking for truth, but not having found it yet. If you've never experienced the wonder of the gospel for yourself, this passage is not talking about you. In fact, the person we see described here is so rare that as, as I've read through it and thought about it, I'm not sure I've, I've met someone like that. I mean, I may have, but God will only really know. But I want to point out two things. My lack of exposure to such a person doesn't mean it cannot happen. And secondly, this is written as a warning of what is possible not for us to go throwing around the word apostate when we don't know all the facts as though it's a throwaway line. Not go looking at other people and, and um, thinking in our mind, oh, he's an apostate. These are serious things to go accusing people of. And it's such a serious topic that without the facts, we have to accept only God knows. Of course, context tells us that the recipients of this letter were a primarily Jewish audience, and there appears to be an appetite for adding to the terms of their salvation, of being tempted to add some of their previous practices, and the New Testament writers rallied against that. They, they rallied against that view, the view that says faith plus something else is required. In the Jewish context, it was aspects of the Mosaic law, Perhaps ceremonial washing, circumcision, keeping of festivals or food laws, keeping the Sabbath, considering people or things more important than they should. And so we see here reminded it throughout Hebrews that Christ is greater than angels, greater than Moses or the priests, so much greater than the law or sacrificial system that is indeed the fulfillment of them. The issue is anyone who adds or takes away from the gospel message, salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, not of works lest any man could boast, presents a false gospel, false hope, false confidence and false security. The Jewish recipients of this letter who assert faith plus anything else is an apostate and some of the headings in your Bible actually add that this is a warning against apostasy or falling away. 
In fact, the term apostate fits well here for it refers to a renunciation of belief, to being disloyal or faithless. It refers literally to falling away. An apostate makes a deliberate, conscious, calculated and willful decision to turn away from the faith and walk a different path. Crucifying again the Son of God speaks to taking the finished work of Christ at Calvary and deciding it's not enough. Whether by adding to the gospel or taking away from it by denying its power. The name of Christ is sullied and it's such a serious affront to God that he says there is no way back. Friends, if there is anything other than faith in Christ alone that is sitting in the recesses of your mind, this is a stark warning to take stock. To take stock of who and what our hope and trust is truly founded upon. We can so easily be seduced by our own standard of what makes a Christian. I mean, tell me, does a, should a Christian smoke or drink? How often should a believer read their Bible? Do they parent the way we think they should or respond to current affairs as we would? Do they serve willingly? Do they give generously? Do they go to small group regularly? I think one of the reasons the Bible is so strong on exhorting us not to judge others, either by outward appearance or our own moral code or standards, is because it can easily become an add-on to what we think a Christian is. Before long, place, before long, faith plus observance in some form or another enters our thinking. And these things can so easily lead us astray in our re- own response to others. Change in behaviour, thinking, priorities or lifestyle are not the means through which we will find the one true God of becoming a Christian. Instead, these things flow out of a life that is transformed through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So in a nutshell, it is possible to experience something of the wonder of Christ and fall away by deliberately rejecting that life and choosing your own. Like Esau, who we hear about in Hebrews chapter 12, who we're told for a single meal sold in his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Like Judas, who walked with God incarnate, ministered in his name, performed miracles, yet Jesus says it would be better for him if he were never born. Probably few of you have heard of a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was a a contemporary of Billy Graham. In the early days of Billy Graham's evangelistic ministry, Charles Templeton was recorded to having preached to crowds of up to 35,000 people. Charles Templeton saw thousands of people come to Christ through his ministry. But over a period of time, Charles Templeton started to have doubts about the word of God particularly the Old Testament, so much so that he left ministering with Billy Graham after they had a a difference of opinion over the inerrancy of Scripture. 
Later on, Charles Templeton wrote a book. I wouldn't encourage you to ever try and find this book or read it. It doesn't have a lot of encouragement. I've read a little bit of it. Uh, it's not inspiring at all. But he wrote a book titled Farewell to God, My Reason for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Now, towards the end of his life as an 80-plus-year-old in a nursing home, uh, Charles Templeton was interviewed by Lee Strobel. You'll recall Lee Strobel is the author of a number of books. And his encounter with Charles Templeton is recorded in Strobel's book, A Case for Faith. And he says, this man, Charles Templeton, was glowing in his praise for Jesus, the man. Describing him as the greatest, bravest, wisest, most complete person to have ever lived. As they entered the end of their conversation together, this is what Strobel records. Charles Templeton says to him, if I may put it this way, as his voice began to crack, I, uh, I miss him. With tears that flooded his eyes, he turned his head and looked downward. Raising his left hand to shield his face from me, his shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. Strobel says, I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. Well, in words we're familiar with, the writer illustrates this point in verses seven and eight by using the imagery of crops producing no fruit as an identifier of those people who have fallen away and who they really are. They receive all they need to produce a good crop, but yield only thorns and thistles. But note, ultimately, it is God who will be their judge. I'm really glad, I'm so thankful that our text today doesn't end here. I'm glad the writer sees something better for the recipients of this letter. It doesn't make the warning any less powerful, but brings to light what are some encouraging and I think relevant words to you and I today. Please read with me from verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." The writer has high hopes for those he is writing to, hopes that are based firmly on the faithfulness of God who has called them to a salvation that continues to transform their lives. This is seen in the love they have for others, their full assurance of hope, and their faith to inherit the promises. They're three words we hear a lot of in the New Testament. Hope, faith, and love. Well, in closing, friends, we as a leadership want to encourage you today to keep going. Through the frustrations of lockdown, I wonder what opportunities might you and I have to cultivate, to grow our relationship with Christ. 
Don't be content with where you're at in your journey with the Lord. To settle for where you are in your relationship with God is to be on shaky ground. And it's really the warning that this passage is talking to us about. If you know him, our prayer is that you will continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Friends, have you plateaued in your life and perhaps just need a kickstart? Perhaps just need someone to get beside you, someone to talk to, someone to mentor, to disciple, to encourage you. We would love to be able to pray and to help you along this path. Please talk to anyone in the pastoral staff, to one of the Christian friends you have that you trust. Open your heart to them. Allow them to minister to you. Can I encourage you, friends, if you're out there searching, don't give in. Don't search in the wrong places. Accept the simplicity yet richness of the gospel for what it is. Come by faith to the one who has loved you and given himself for you. Don't listen to those voices that say you're not good enough. How could you be forgiven? Don't think you have to perform to reach a certain standard. Come to the cross. Acknowledge your need. Ask Jesus to take you as you are. You know, striving to grow up, to move on, to honestly take stock of our current state, persevering is not a one-way street. It's a partnership with a God who will complete what he's begun in his people. He will honour the desire of your heart to work in a, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says it much better than I ever could in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, he says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now if he was to finish there, we might think, I've got to work harder. I've got to read more. I've got to pray longer. I've got to um, be continuing to serve as much as I can, to continue to push myself on. But Paul goes on in the next verse and he says this, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Yes, we must continue to strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must continue to be growing in our relationship with the Lord. But always remember, God is there in the background, fulfilling his good purpose in your life. So to each of us, and I include myself, friends, don't stand still. Grow up, move on, take stock, and persevere in your ongoing journey. Please let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for the joy of your word. And Lord God, we're in a season that's challenging for so many of us. Father God, I pray that your spirit would be the great comforter to those who are struggling, uh, who are feeling uneasy, uh, who are wondering what the future lies. Lord God, in this time, may you give us the grace to be able to focus on your goodness, your faithfulness, your promises that our strength will come in and through the relationship we have that comes through Jesus Christ. Give us hearts to hear um, what you want us to learn. And I pray that you would teach us what it means to continue to grow, never to be content with where we're at, always hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We commit ourselves to you knowing that you're a God 
who longs to fellowship with us. And even more than that, you're a God who hears. And perhaps even more than that, you're a God who answers in incredible ways. May we always be surprised, encouraged and built up in your name.